Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 2, says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Every year on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, we begin to celebrate the Advent season. Advent is a Latin word that means coming. It's the period in which we anticipate and celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ as a baby into this world. God in the flesh walking among us as one of us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, cried out John the Baptist when he saw Jesus walking towards him. And as we enter this celebration and this anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ, we're going to begin a new series of sermons titled, What Child Is This? We're so blessed to live in a time after Jesus has already come, to have the ability to experience his grace and love in our lives. But 700 years before Jesus was born, a prophet by the name of Isaiah was already telling people the good news about the Messiah who was to come. To a people living in rebellion to God who had not actually experienced yet this judgment that was coming on them and this exile that God was bringing as a punishment for their sins. To them, Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Who was this child? Isaiah says that he will be called by four names in Isaiah 9-6, and those names of Jesus that Isaiah gives us are what we're going to be looking at as we come into the Christmas season. I'd like to open with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son. And I thank you that you were willing to give him to us as a substitution for our sins, to lead us out of the darkness. And I just ask that as we celebrate the coming of your son these next weeks, I just ask that you would be with us, and that you would open our hearts to hear the gospel. So in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this prophecy is in Isaiah 9. We're going to read verses 2 to 7 today. And it says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and his people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery, and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with justice, justice and fairness from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So before we do anything else, we need to talk for a couple minutes about what a name even is. Because we all have them. Uh, in today's day and age, uh, we all have a last name or a family name. 
Uh, and, and that's kind of what we use to identify what family or clan we're a part of. It identifies which group of people we belong to, who our people are. Then we have middle names. And I'm sure you've all heard the joke that middle names were invented so that your mother or spouse could tell you when you're really in trouble. But historically, middle names were meant as a way to either honor a relative or for a way to give your child the name of a seed. That was kind of the historical purpose of them. So for my family, for example, uh, my brothers and I each have a family name, and then we have a Bible name. Uh, there's not a particular order, so each of us are kind of switched, but for me, I'm named Stephen after Stephen in the Bible. And then Earl, my middle name, that was my great-grandfather. And then we have our first names, and that's kind of our identity. It's, it's who we are. Uh, it's how I identify a person in a room. Now, in our society, we usually choose a name because we like the way it sounds. Uh, sometimes there's a meaning that we're aware of. Uh, sometimes there isn't. But usually most people are more concerned with how a name sounds than they are with what it means when they're picking out a name. And a lot of people today probably don't actually know what their name means. Some of us do, um, but some of us don't. It's not as important to us as how it sounds. But it hasn't always been that way. And in many cultures today, it's not that way. Historically, um, biblically, a person was given a name that specifically meant something to them. The meaning of the name had something to do with the identity of the person. So a few examples, the name Esau in scripture means Harry in Hebrew. And Isaac and Rebecca named him that because when he came out of his mother, he was in fact covered in hair. So that's, you know, I'm gonna call you Harry. <laughs> that's, uh, I guess that's one way to pick a kid's name. We put a little more thought into it now. <laughs> then the name Jacob, Jacob, which means he grasps the heel because he was Esau's twin and when he came out, he was holding his brother's heel. But it's also a Hebrew idiom for a deceiver, which was what Jacob became when he tricked his father into giving him the blessing that was meant for his brother. Eve means mother of all the living, and Adam literally means ground or groundling, is kind of the sense of it, uh, or dustling, earthling, because he was created from the dirt or the dust on the ground. Sometimes God also gives people new names in Scripture or instructs people to give their child a certain name. God renamed Abram, Abraham, which means father of nations, because of his promise to him. God told Abraham to name his son Isaac, which means he laughs, because when God told Abraham that Sarah would give birth to a son, Abraham literally fell on the ground laughing at the thought of it. So I kind of think, you know, God has a sense of humor. <laughs> So every time you think of your son Isaac, you're going to remember that you laughed when I told you that you would have a son. Jacob was given the new name Israel, which means a man who wrestles with God, because he literally wrestled with God. Then a more modern example in the New Testament is when Jesus renamed Simon Peter, which means rock. And we know that Jesus said on that rock he would build his church. These names reveal things about people to whom they were given. They weren't just names that were picked because they sounded nice. They were given these names because they tell you something about the person. They tell you something about their nature and character, the circumstances around their birth. 
And occasionally God would change someone's name to signify either a covenant with them or the changed direction that their life would have after encountering God. The same thing is true culturally in our prophecy about Jesus. Even the name Jesus means Savior or Yahweh saves. And that name tells us a lot about Jesus and what he came to do. Likewise, these four names given to Jesus by Isaiah, 700 years before he was born, tells us something about the plans of God. Because these names are not just names. And in giving four names to the Messiah or child, Isaiah is trying to tell us something about the character of the child he's given to us, but also that one name alone is not sufficient to sum up what we need to know about the coming Messiah. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But who would this son be? Who would this child be? And so through this Advent season, these next four weeks, we're going to take time to carefully consider each of these names given by Isaiah to Jesus. The first name he gives to us is Wonderful Counselor. I thought you picked a really good song today, Gina, because it sounds about that. So what does this name mean? What does it mean that Jesus is a wonderful counselor? I think first I want to kind of split it up. So let's just talk about counselor for a second first, and we'll just come back to wonderful in a few minutes. When I say a counselor today, or I'm going to go see a counselor, or uh, I have a friend who's a counselor, we, we kind of think of a medical professional who you'd go to in order to work through some problems or challenges. Uh, and that's kind of similar to the definition I found online, which is a person trained to give guidance on a personal, social, or psychological problem. And I think that definition does kind of capture a, a bit of what is meant in the biblical sense, but there's also a bit of a broader sense of what a counselor is scripturally. In the Bible, being a counselor had a lot more to do with leading and guiding in everyday life, not just when there was a significant problem or struggle to work through. The word counselor just comes from the word counsel, which just means to give advice. And the best comparison today is the political advisors that uh, our politicians have and surround themselves with. Uh, they'll consult them on any decisions or choices, uh, and they'll give advice to the leaders based on their experience on what they should do. The kings of ancient Israel were no different. They would surround themselves with these advisors who would advise them on what decisions to make. And often they were older, wiser men who could advise the king on what they should do based on their years of wisdom. But also in ancient Israel, a wise king would be portrayed as a counselor as well, like Solomon giving guidance to his people. An example of this is in Micah 4.9. Now why do you cry out loudly, is there no king among you, or has your counselor perished? So it's kind of used to describe a king sometimes. It's also described, um, or used to describe God as well, in Isaiah 28, 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. So in terms of what this means when it's applied to Jesus, Jesus is our wise advisor, he gives us counsel by which we should shape our lives and make our decisions. And that's kind of just the sense of the word counselor here. But he's not just any counselor. He's our wonderful counselor. So what does wonderful mean? 
To us today, we say things are wonderful if they are pleasant or lovely or enjoyable. You know, what a wonderful day I had, or that was a wonderful meal, thank you. And, and that's kind of what we mean today, but that was not what was meant ever when the word was used in Scripture. It really is a compound word, wonderful, or to rephrase, full of wonder. And the sense of this word, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, is incomprehensible. And the perfect example of this is in Judges 13.8. Samson's father asks an angel who appeared to him what his name is. And the angel replies by saying, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Or in other words, Why do you ask my name, since it is beyond your understanding? And that's how some translations will translate that. Jesus is wonderful as a counselor in a way that boggles our minds. He is wise and able to advise us and guide us and shape our lives in a way that is so incredible that it is beyond our understanding. He alone is qualified to advise us in ways that no human being ever could be. Colossians 2.3 says, In him lies hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As God, he knows all, and he can guide us in ways that we never could. But as a human, as one of us, he also understands and knows what we're going through. And he always knows the right course of action. Hebrews 4.15 says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And that's important because this child that Isaiah prophesied would come, he would be both God and man. For unto us a child, a human child is born. But also for unto us a son, the son is given. He is also God, and because he is God, he knows all. He has all wisdom and all knowledge. But because he is human, he knows and understands our weaknesses. He's experienced the same temptations and trials that we have, and he knows the struggle that we go through. Because of these two things, he is able to counsel us in life in such a way that it leaves us full of wonder. It's incomprehensible to us. So that's what that name means. Now we have kind of a a decent understanding of the depth of this. And that Jesus is the only person in history who could possibly fill this role for us. So now that we understand that, let's talk about what that means for us. How does it impact our lives today? First of all, he's our advocate. As the wonderful counselor, he's our advocate. See, as our counselor, he doesn't just advise us. He also speaks in our defense. He advises the Father. Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan is constantly trying to convince God that those of us who follow Jesus are not worthy of eternal life. It says, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan is constantly trying to convince God to condemn us for our sins. But Paul says in Romans that Jesus is constantly at God's side pleading our case. Romans 8.33-34 says, Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself, has given us right standing with him. 
Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Only Jesus is able to do this. He's the only one who is holy enough, the only one who has the right. He gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He paid the penalty with his own life, with his own blood. And because of that, he is the only one who has the authority and the power to be an advocate for us before God the Father. When Satan tries to accuse us of being unworthy of salvation, he points to all our sin. But when Jesus pleads our case, he doesn't plead our innocence, he admits our guilt. He doesn't try to argue we didn't commit the crime. But instead, he presents the evidence of his hands and feet that the punishment for our sins has already been paid for. Through his sacrifice, Jesus has provided enough grace and forgiveness to cover the sin of the entire world, let alone my own. The grace that he provides is more than enough to meet my need, and it's more than enough to meet every accusation of Satan. So in this way, as the wonderful counselor, he is incomprehensibly full of wonder. Second, he is our advisor. Through the Holy Spirit, and through his words and teachings during his time here on earth, he comes into our lives to guide us and to enable us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God the Father. Jesus is not just in heaven speaking and defending for, for us. He is also speaking directly to us through his spirit and through his word. And we know that his guidance for our lives will always be relevant because he is with us. He's in us, walking in our shoes, seeing what we see and hearing what we hear, feeling what we feel. His guidance for us will always be relevant because he knows exactly where we are and he knows exactly what we need. So we know that his guidance will always be relevant, and we also know his guidance will be reliable. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. So this is a quote of Jesus. He's calling the Spirit the Spirit of truth. And everything that the Spirit tells us comes directly from Jesus. The Spirit does not speak on his own. The Spirit tells us what it's heard. So he will always be truthful. We may not like what he has to tell us, but he will always be truthful in convincing us of what we should do and in convicting us of what we need to change. He wants to guide us in all areas of our life. We know that he is fully God, and in him is all wisdom and knowledge. We also know that he walked among us and experienced all the beauty and pain that life has to offer. He experienced our temptations. He knows us and he knows our struggles. And he wants to help us, to speak to us, to guide us, and to enable us to live a life that pleases God. He is full of mercy and compassion and love. His counsel in our lives is incomprehensible because his ways are so much higher than our ways. He is our wonderful counselor, guiding us out of the darkness and into the light. 
So as we close and as we enter this Advent season, remembering that this child was given to us, born to die for our sins, and as we remember the love that God has had for us to give His Son, I'll ask this question. Are you allowing Jesus to be your wonderful counselor? Are you allowing him to guide you and to shape you and to speak to you through his word? As we study these names of Jesus, we are going to be reminded of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he is still doing here today. The love, of work, the love and the work of Jesus is wonderful both in the new and the old sense of the word. It is wonderful in that it's lovely and marvelous. But it's also wonderful in that it fills us with wonder because it is so great that it is beyond our comprehension. So this Christmas season, my prayer is that you will be overcome with the love of Jesus, that his spirit will fill you, and that you will allow the wonderful counselor to lead and to guide your life. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that not only did you give your son, but you left a breadcrumb of prophecies through history to give people hope in the midst of darkness. I just ask that as we celebrate all of the things that you've done for us, though we did not deserve it, that you would allow us to be filled with your love and your spirit so that we can share the love of Jesus with the world around us through our words and through our actions. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.